Good morning. I love songs like that. It reminds me of growing up and the old, my, my grandmother used to play the organ in the, in the church that uh, she was from. It was a very small country church and they had a pot belly stove in the middle to heat the place up in the winter time and she had something called a pump organ. How many of you ever heard of a pump organ? Oh, yeah. A lot older than I thought you were. <laughs> so she used to play that pump organ, and she'd be going on. They'd sing songs like this, and I remember having conversations with them after the services, and we would talk about the Lord's coming. And you could just see the longing in their eyes, the longing in their heart for the Lord to come back soon. That's the subject this morning as we look at First Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse 13, but before we do that, I want to tell you a story. Once upon a time, or a long, long time ago, however you like your stories to begin, about 2,000 years ago, there was a young man who was a prince, and he traveled to a far country where he carried out his father's business. That's what he came for. He was there to... Um, conduct his father's business, and while he was away in this far country, he met and fell in love with a young woman. And everybody likes a good love story. Hollywood films are full of stories like this. He was a prince, but she was not born into royalty. She was a slave. She had absolutely nothing that she could call her own, and she lived in absolute squalor. When he met her, she was actually covered or wearing filthy rags. But the prince saw her and had compassion on her, and his heart was moved with love for her, and he wanted to marry her. As you looked at the situation, you looked at the two people, really there seemed to be no obvious reason why these two would ever end up together. They seemed completely incompatible. He was a man of great character. She was actually a woman of disgrace. He was a man of great wealth. And she was living in poverty. But he loved her anyway. And he began, really he lavished her with gifts and at first, she didn't know where they were coming from. Secretly, he made sure that she was well fed and she had good food every single day. Plenty to drink. And uh, he even clothed her. He made sure that she was provided with clothing as well. Place to be. He provided health care for her. However, after some time, it became apparent that he was the one who was providing all of this stuff for her, everything she needed. And she found out that he loved her. And when he told her how much he loved her, she was absolutely speechless. Soon, there came a time when he proposed to her. And with the proposal, he offered to purchase her release from slavery and to pay 
all of her debts. He loved her, and he would do anything for her to make her his bride. Well, 2,000 years ago, some of you know history, and uh, you know that the marriage ceremonies were a little different than they are today. And so when um, the tradition was 2,000 years ago that when you proposed to a woman, to marry a woman, if she accepted the proposal, she would become betrothed to you. And a betrothal is sort of kind of similar in a way to our engagement, but it was more binding. There was more to it than our engagement today. Luke mentioned something about what if somebody proposed to a woman today and then changed his mind. Well, it would just be all over. That's it. Done. She keeps the ring. You walk away. You know, that's the way it is today. It shouldn't be, but that is. Back then, that's not the way it was. Betrothal was much, much more binding than that, but similar to our engagement. And the tradition included some other features as well. I look back at 31 plus years ago, and I proposed to my wife, and believe it or not, she accepted my proposal. Now, we didn't get married on that same day that she accepted my proposal. Not very many people do. But I told her at the time, let's set a date. How long will it take you to be, be ready for the wedding? How long will it take you to you know, do all the foo-foo stuff and the um, shopping for the dress and all of that kind of thing? And, and uh, so we set a date. And uh, that was the date I would marry her. And as a token of my pledge, I gave her an engagement ring. And I, and I put it on her finger. And that was my pledge or my promise that not only would she get the ring and she could keep it, but eventually she would get me too. Oh, happy girl. The prince also gave his pledge to marry this former slave girl. But they didn't get married that day either. And he gave her a token of his pledge. On the day that I asked Krista to marry me, I was temporarily living in Canada, waiting to come back into the U.S. And um, I drove from Vancouver down to Seattle that evening. And I took her to a place that I had already prepared and already thought through and proposed to her overlooking Green Lake, which is a lake in Seattle. I made sure there was a full moon and that there was a bench there that I could kneel in front of and propose to her. And, you know, it was all very, uh, you know, picturesque and beautiful and had nice music playing in the background on my boombox. And it was uh, sweet. They don't have boomboxes anymore, I know. And when I asked her to marry me, I knew that if she accepted my proposal, that we would get married soon and I would move her to California with me. Um, But I was quite sure that if I moved her to California with me, that she wouldn't want to live where I was currently living with a bunch of bachelors. I was pretty sure that that wasn't going to, she wasn't going to go for that, that she wasn't going to live with three other guys in the same, uh, in the same building. So I knew that I would have to travel back to California before we got married, and I would have to find a place and prepare the place for her to live. Well, in our story of the prince, he was from a far country, and he had to return to his father, and it was to that far country he would ultimately take his bride. But first, after the proposal, after the betrothal, he had to return 
go back and prepare a place for her that where he was, there she may be also. And as soon as the prince was finished preparing the home for his bride, I don't think there was a minute that elapsed and he was going to come back and get her. And she had to be ready. And there was no date set. There was no, no uh, time set for this. It's just whenever he was finished, whenever the house was ready, the home was ready, whenever he had accomplished everything he needed to accomplish, he would come back and she just had to be ready. And then they would return to his home, and the two would live happily ever after. That's the kind of story we like, right? And I want to assure you about something. It's a true story. And some of you may recognize the story as being the story of the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for his bride, the church. The prince is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came from a far country. The Bible calls it heaven. And he came into this world to do his father's business. The Bible says, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And when he saw us, he loved us. And the Bible says that he loved us with an everlasting love. That's the kind of love that he has for us. He was the prince of peace. And we were slaves. We were slaves to our own sin. And it was our sin that separated us from him. He was royalty. He is royalty. We are slaves to our sin. And when he came into this world, uh, I'm sorry, we came into this world with nothing, the Bible says, and it is certain that we're going to leave the same way with nothing. We lived in squalor. Our sins and iniquities separated us from him. And even our righteous deeds, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. And when he found us, that's what he found. Us living in squalor, living with filthy rags. But the prince had compassion on us and moved with love for us so much that he came down from the splendor of heaven into this den of iniquity. And it seems to be no obvious reason why he should ever love us or ever want to spend eternity with us. We seemed so completely incompatible. He is one, the Bible says, who knew no sin. He did no sin. And in him there is no sin. He is a man of great character. We are not so, for the Bible says we have all fallen short of the glory of God. He is one of great wealth. We are beggars. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And the Lord did more than simply lavish us with gifts. It is true that he provided us with food and with um, water and our health and our clothing and our shelter. But it's true also that he administers to us one breath at a time. And he gives to us one heartbeat at a time each moment throughout the day. It's an indisputable fact that he loves us. And to demonstrate his love, the Bible tells us that God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no love like his. He died that he might save us from our sin. And he offers forgiveness 
for your sins. And he offers to remove your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west. And he says, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. That's his pledge to those who believe in him. The proposal is real. It says, as many as received him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. That's the proposal. Do you want to be in God's family? Do you want to have your sins forgiven? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The offer is real. But just like in an engagement, both parties must accept the terms of the engagement. And so the question is, when I asked Krista, will you marry me? I had to get from her an answer that said, I will. I do. And just like the Lord has offered to us eternal life, salvation, forgiveness of sins, and he's making a bona fide offer to you, he must hear from you. Your answer, I do. I will. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. And if you will, by a definite act of faith, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You are really accepting the proposal. And he gives to those who accept his proposal a pledge, just like I gave an engagement ring. He gives a pledge as well. And a token of his pledge is the Holy Spirit of God who will indwell you. He is the engagement ring, as you, if you will. He is the spirit of promise, the Bible says. The promise is that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again to receive you to himself. When Jesus was about to leave the world, he said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas was listening to this, and he said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He said, I go. So remember the story of the prince? He went back to his father's place and he said, I will go, but I will come again. When he is finished preparing the place, he will come again to receive his bride to himself and take her back to himself. I go, Jesus said. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. Wow. Can you imagine being that slave, former slave girl and hearing that? This is the prince. He is the, he's the king, essentially. He's going. Makes my heart sad. But he's coming again. Not for, he's, not, he's going not forever. He's going, but he's going to prepare a place for me. He's going, but he's coming again. He's going, but he's coming again for me. And one day soon, I will be with him. And that is the promise that Jesus gave, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is coming again. Well, Paul taught this truth to the Thessalonian church. They must have heard this. They must have known about it. And then after he left, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. 
And in the meantime, they began talking about this amongst themselves, and they had all kinds of questions. Well, okay, if the Lord is coming back again, that's great. We're looking for Him. We're waiting for Him. And as we looked at last week, some of them became lazy and said, well, we're just going to quit our job and sit, sit on a bench here, sit on a rock and wait for Him. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Get back out there and work. Serve the Lord daily. But He's still coming, and He could come any time. And um, He's waiting uh, I mean, you're waiting for his return. And they had, well, there's, there's got to be other questions too. I mean, what happens if during the time here that we're waiting for the Lord, you know, I mean, grandma's getting up there in age. I know she's trusting the Lord, but what if she dies? Then what? Does she miss out? Does she miss out on all the Lord has promised? Is the Lord going to take her back too? Or is it just the, you know, the few of us who remain? who are alive at the time of the coming of the Lord. And so all these questions must have been brewing in their minds, and Paul wanted to answer them here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's coming. They believed in the imminent return of Christ, which means at, at any moment. So that wasn't the question. It was really more about what's going to happen um, about those who died. Some of the people in Thessalonica probably died as a result of persecution. What was going to happen to them? Some of them may have died through natural causes. And that probably created some alarms in um, those who remained alive. What happens? Well, so many questions. Let's take a look at some of the answers here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And I'm telling you, these words are a tremendous comfort to believers especially those who have faced the death of a loved one um, near to them, a believing loved one. So we want to look at this passage and look at several points here. First of all, there is no need for ignorance. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. So the future of every single believer is absolutely certain. The Lord has promised that he is going to prepare a place for us. He promised that he will soon return to gather his believers to himself. He promised that he will take us home to heaven. And the question again is what about those Christians who have already died? And what happens if I die before the Lord returns? What's going to happen to me? Well, first Paul speaks of those who have fallen asleep. Who is he referring to? And why have they fallen asleep? They didn't fall asleep because of a boring message. I know that. Okay? 
They felt what, what he's talking about here, if you look at the context, Paul is speaking to the brethren. So he's talking to believers. That's a term that is used for Christians. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. God is our Father, and we are part of the same family. So when he talks about brethren, he's talking about other believers. So when Paul speaks of brethren, he is only speaking about Christians. Unbelievers are excluded from what he is talking about here. He is only talking about Christians. And when he talks about those who have fallen asleep, he is talking about brethren or Christians who have fallen asleep or died. That's really what he's talking about. How do I know that he's talking about death? Uh, Because the main point of this section is that our bodies die. That's what he's talking about in this whole section. Our bodies die. And when you see a dead body, some of you have seen people who are dead, they look very much like a person who is asleep. In 2007, December 25th, I was in the room when Bill McDonald passed away. He did not look any different to me five minutes before he died than five minutes after he died. The only difference was his chest wasn't rising and falling with his breath. But his body looked exactly the same. He looked like he was simply asleep. And that's what he's talking about here. When you see a dead body, it looks similar to someone who is asleep. In the Bible, death, we've, we've learned this before, death is always, it always refers to a separation. And when you have the death of a body, what is separated? It is the soul and the spirit that is separated from the body. The body is still there, but the real you or the real person is no longer there. And so when you have the death of a body, you have the physical body still there and it's decaying very quickly. But the, the real you, your spirit and your soul are gone. That's the separation. Our body, the Bible talks about this, our body is like a tent or our body is like a container. It's like a shell that really just encloses the real you inside. It's how we communicate, it's how the real you communicates with other bodies, other people. But when your body dies, the real you no longer lives in this tent. Your body's still there, but your soul and spirit are somewhere else. Well, if if it's somewhere else, where is it? If you are an unbeliever, that's not who he's talking about here, but let me just say this. If you are an unbeliever, when you die, your soul and your spirit are immediately placed in hell. Immediately. This is a waiting place from which there is no escape. It is a place the Bible talks about as a place of torment, darkness, wailing and gnashing of teeth, and a place that is temporarily holding you until the time of the great white throne judgment where God will raise up those bodies, those people, and their spirits will come before Him at the great white throne judgment and there they will be judged before God for the things that they have done in their bodies. There is no escape from this judgment and there is no possibility at this judgment of somehow being exonerated and taken to heaven. That is not what happens at the great white throne judgment. There it is a question of the severity, not the length, but the severity of the punishment. 
And the Bible talks about how it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for those people who were living during Jesus' day and saw the miracles that they saw. So there is severity or, or degrees of punishment, but it's eternal. It doesn't end. And for those who don't know Christ, when they die, that's it. There is no second chance after they die. Most people don't want to think about that. Most people believe all kinds of fairy tales about what happens at death. But the truth of the matter is this is what the Bible teaches. So there are many stories today, many movies, many books, many news articles about what takes place after death. And they are usually based on some account of someone who has had an NDE, near-death experience. And the basic theme is the same, and the basic theme is a lie. I want you to know this very carefully. Okay? The theme is consistently the same, and it's always a lie. Those who claim they have had near-death experiences, they say that when they, they died, and that they saw a great light, and this light, everything was peaceful, and everything was, was wonderful, and this light was, they were being drawn to this light, and that was their passageway to heaven. And this great peace and serenity and comfort was all part of it. But that is one of the biggest lies of Satan out there that is being promoted um, or thrown at mankind today. That is not the truth of the Bible. There is only one account in the Bible of someone who speaks about their, his experience after death. It was not a near-death experience where he came back to life. It was a death experience, and God pulled back the curtain for us to see what was going on behind the scenes. It's the only account of this in Scripture. And it was in Luke chapter 16, verse 27, where it says this, Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, he was talking to Abraham, that you would send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment." For the unbeliever, it is not a place of light. It is a place of horror. It is a place of terror. It is a place of torment. That is the biblical truth about hell. So if you read stuff like this or see movies about this that say something else, recognize the source. The source is it comes from the father of lies, not the father in glory. Don't believe a lie. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 about the believers. Now, so that's talking about unbelievers. Now we're going to talk about believers. What happens when a believer dies? What happens to his soul and spirit or her soul and spirit when he, when she, he or she dies? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, in other words, as long as our soul and our spirit are living inside our bodies... We are absent from the Lord, right? So as you sit here this morning, the biggest drawback of being in your body is that you're not with the Lord. That's the biggest drawback. And so he says that. He says, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. But it is equally true that if our body dies and our soul and our spirit are released from our body, you, that is the real you, will be in the very presence of the Lord. And that is instantaneous. The moment you take your last breath on earth, 
you open your eyes in heaven. It's that quick. How do I know that? Because Paul goes on to say, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. And Paul was talking to the Corinthians and he says, you know, I feel like I'm being tossed and torn inside. And the the, the tossing is this. As long as I'm in the body, I can minister to you. I can help you. But, oh, how much I would love to be released from this body and be in the presence of the Lord. And that's what happens to a believer. That moment they die, they're in the presence of the Lord. Paul went on to say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Most people don't think of death as gain. But to a believer, we do. Death is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Okay? And so the consistency of the teaching of the Scripture is that when a believer dies, their soul and spirit are immediately transported into the very presence of the Lord. But their bodies are not. Their bodies remain on earth. And their bodies are just like any other body. They decay. They turn to dust. We put them in graves or we do whatever with them. And so when a believer dies, his body remains on earth, but his soul and spirit are not in a place of torment, but he is with Christ. You know, being with Christ is far better than being in this body that is wasting away. And uh, I remember my grandparents and my parents and old people used to talk about, you know, bodies that were decaying and falling apart. Well, I've joined that company of old people, you know. My body is wasting away. It's not a very pleasant place to live. But eventually I'm going to be free from this body and I will be in the presence of the Lord. And there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more aches, no more crying, no more fingers almost uh, chopped off. Okay? I will be free from all of that and so will you if you know the Lord. Well, the believers at Thessalonica got that. So what happens to the body then? Is the body of no value? Does the Lord hold no value to this thing that he made? I mean, honestly, it says in the scripture about how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. It talks about in Psalm 139, all of the pains that the Lord took in weaving us in our mother's womb and all of the rest of it. So there's something of some value, isn't there? What happens to this body? Well, Paul refers to Christians, as I said, who have already died, as those who have fallen asleep. Verse 13. In verse 14, he says about the same bodies, that they sleep in Jesus. And then he talks about them in verse 16 as the dead in Christ. And Paul is referring here to the physical body, not the soul and the spirit. The moment a believer dies, he or she, as I said, is ushered into the presence of God in heaven. But when you look on earth, there's their body. It's just lying there on a bed or on a gurney as if they sleep. So, you know, when family and friends come into the hospital room or into the room in your home where you have passed away and there you are 
lying in state, I think they call it. They're filled with sorrow. They're filled with sorrow. Are they sorrowing for you? Not really. Why do we sorrow? Why do we cry at the death of somebody? For ourselves, yeah. It hurts us. We have just experienced a loss. They, if they're believers, have just experienced the greatest gain in their life. Their death has now ushered them into the presence of the Lord. And yet we sorrow. It's our loss. Our loss. But it's their gain. Paul said, remember, um, to be with Christ is far better. And our sorrow is real. And it's deeply felt. Um, But our sorrow cannot be like the sorrow of unbelievers. And it should not be like that. Remember, an unbeliever is immediately ushered into hell. There's no second chance. There's no escape. So sorrow for unbelievers is intense because they have no hope. In 2007, as I sat in the hospital for almost a month with Bill McDonald as he was dying, many of the rooms around us became filled with other patients and then they were emptied as they died and then another patient would come in. And it was interesting to to me to watch or to observe the sorrow that came and went from those rooms. And in some cases where you had families who were unsaved and you had an unsaved relative who died, I remember one case in particular where the family literally, they were there in the presence of their father and husband as he died. And as he died, all the hospital staff rushed in to see what they could do. There was nothing they could do. He was dead. And when they, when they recognized he was dead, they literally threw themselves on the floor and wept, wailed. I mean, not just wept. They were wailing um, because of the sorrow. It's real. It's deep. It's felt. But there's no hope. That's why the sorrow was so deep in their case. When Bill died, there were tears shed. We sorrowed. But we also rejoiced. And we're kind of like this split personality, aren't we, as believers? We're sorrowing because it hurts us to lose a dear friend, a dear loved one. But we rejoice that they have been ushered into the presence of the Lord. So I want to think about this for just a minute. For believers... For unbelievers, their separation is eternal. Okay, They'll never see them again. It's eternal. For believers, our separation is temporary. And I want to think about this because the sorrow of losing a loved one should not stop us in our tracks and make us ineffective. If my wife dies or if my children die or our friends die, it should not stop us from continuing to serve the Lord with gladness. That should not be the end for us because they have passed away. If God takes our spouse but leaves us here, that means what? That he still has work for us to do. It means that God was finished with her or him first and that she's already complete and in heaven. And the Lord still has an awful lot of work left for me to do, or to do on me, okay? Either way. 
If God takes a child before he takes the parents, it means that God has finished the work in that child, but he hasn't finished the work in you. If God takes away a dear believer, then perhaps God wants you to grab the baton that they have left behind and run with it. Fill the space, fill the place of that one who has gone before you. Maybe that is your opening to serve the Lord. There is no need for ignorance about these things, Paul says. The Bible is very clear. Well, verse 13, there is no need for hopeless sorrow. We do not sorrow as others who have no hope. In 1950, and I think I've told you this story before, but it fits here well. 1958, my father was invited by a man from his church to um, go to a Sunday school um, class that he was conducting at Sunny Hill Children's Hospital in Vancouver. Sunny Hill Children's Hospital was a hospital where um, parents literally would abandon their children who were very, very sick, um, hopeless cases of physical and mental uh, ailments, and the parents simply could not care for these children. And so it was the hospital's responsibility to raise these children. And uh, this man asked my father, he says, hey, I've been conducting the Sunday school class at this hospital every Sunday. Would you like to come and see it? Would you like to come and help me uh, see what it's like and see if you'd like to help out? And Dad said, sure. So he went the next Sunday with this man. And as soon as he was finished the class, my dad was already in love with these children. And uh, he's, so the man turned to my dad as they were leaving. He says, would you like to come back next Sunday? He says, oh, would I? He says, that would be great. That same week, that man died, the man who had invited my father. And for 56 years, my father has gone to that hospital <laughs> pretty much faithfully every single Sunday except when he comes down to visit us or goes off on a vacation. And he usually has somebody take his place. He is the chaplain of that hospital, has been for 56 years. And I look at that and I, I think of death. And I think of that man that God was finished with that man's work that week. And he passed the baton on to my father to take on the challenge, to, to do the work that was, he was going to leave behind because God was finished with him. His work was complete. And when God takes away a believer, the baton is being passed, probably to you, to take up the challenge to serve the Lord um, in the work that is left behind. God is not finished. If you're still here, God is not finished with you yet. There is a lie that Satan likes to tell people who have lost a loved one. And that lie is, give up. Just quit. Give up. Give up. Don't believe the lie of Satan. If you're still moving and you're still breathing, then God has not completed the work in you. When a man goes off to war, maybe this is sexist the way I'm saying it, but when a man goes off to war, he leaves his wife behind and he expects that she will carry on with life and will be forward-looking and will fill her days with productive and fruitful activities. And in a war, separation may be for years, but separation is temporary. When a man goes off to work or when a couple goes their separate ways to work each morning, they expect that their spouse will fill his or her day with productive and fruitful activities. Because the separation is only for a while. At the end of the day, they will come back together again. Soon they'll be reunited. 
In our story of the prince, Jesus told his disciples that he was going away. And he said, let not your heart be troubled. If I go, I will come again. You see, it's temporary. His leaving is temporary. But he will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. I'm going, but it's not forever. I'm coming again. Separation is temporary. I think about sorrow when it comes to death. And uh, the Lord has taught me this lesson several times because I'm a slow learner. Um, I have to re- have lessons repeated to me. And, uh, but several times the Lord has reminded me of his view of sorrow in life circumstances. And he says in Jeremiah 31:16, Thus says the Lord, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, says the Lord. I could go on for a whole sermon on that passage, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to simply say this, that there is a time for weeping, and there is a time for refraining from weeping. When we lose a loved one, we sorrow. But it should also challenge us to rise up, to fill the shoes of those who have been left behind, and to serve the Lord with gladness. Unbelievers are filled with sorrow. Because they have no hope. There is no future. The grave seals or marks their doom. But as for the Christian, the grave is just the end of the beginning of eternity. And we are not ignorant of the fact that we will be resurrected and given a resurrected body. Job said in the Old Testament, In my flesh I shall see God. The Bible says in the New Testament, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Well, there's no need for doubt either. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Just as a poll here, how many of you believe that Jesus died? Okay. So everybody believe, just keep your hands up if you believe that Jesus died. How many believe that Jesus rose again? Okay, hands actually went up higher. That's good. <laughs> All right, good. So he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with us, with him, I should say, those who sleep in Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? Yes, we do. Well, then you believe in the resurrection because you believe that Jesus rose again. You believe in the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, it is certain that those who are in Christ will also rise from the dead and be given a glorified body just as he was given. Since we believe in the resurrection, it is certain that God will bring with Jesus those who sleep in Jesus. And so the Lord Jesus right now is allowing believers who have died, he's allowing the bodies of those believers to lie in sleep, as it were, in the grave. But he has not forgotten them. Just as he rose from the dead, so they shall rise from the dead. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. 
So the interesting thing about it is this. The Thessalonians must have had questions. They said, well, okay, we know that Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, we're going to go up to meet him. We know we're okay if we're alive. But what about them? And the interesting thing about this passage is Paul says, no, 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 no. You've got this backwards. They're going, those who are dead are going to rise first. What? I thought we'd go up first. No, those who are dead will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So what he's saying is this. Look, if you think they're going to be missed, no, they're not. They're going to rise first. The Lord hasn't forgotten them. Their bodies will rise to meet the Lord in the air. And then when the Lord Jesus Christ returns with his glorified church, every believer in Christ will be brought back with the Lord to reign on the earth. The dead in Christ shall rise. Who does that include? The dead in Christ shall rise. We believe in, uh, or we teach dispensationalism. Dispensationalism teaches that we are living in the church age. The church age began with Pentecost, and it will continue until the rapture. That group of people are, encompass the church. Everyone who is a believer in that time frame is part of the church. And so when he says the dead in Christ shall rise, he's talking about those who have died in the church age. When Jesus Christ comes back at the rapture, they will all rise. That means all of the apostles. That means all of the church fathers. That means all of the Christians who have gone before us, whose names you know. You know about... Martin Luther, you know about George Mueller, you know about all of these famous people, all of those people who were martyred for their faith, all of them. And if we die too, before he comes back, we too will rise up first and meet the Lord in the air. And so it includes believers from 2,000 years ago to the present time from every tribe and tongue and people and nation under heaven. And together they will make up a glorious church. It will be His bride that has been waiting for His return. His bride um, in whom there is no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. His bride who is holy and blameless without blemish. It is his bride whom he has redeemed to God by his blood. Well, there's no need to doubt. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is all the evidence we need that we too will rise from the the grave. It is one of the most well-attested facts of history that Jesus rose from the dead. And we can say with Job, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Those who have gone before us will rise from the dead. So, now we look at, real quickly, the rapture. Paul has more to say about the rapture. And rather than the dead missing out on something, Paul makes it clear that they have precedence over us. So, first of all, the rapture includes Christians only, all Christians only. Those who sleep in Jesus refers to believers in the church age. Those Old Testament saints are not resurrected at this time. That is not when they are resurrected. They're resurrected later. 
But every believer from Pentecost to the rapture uh, who has died will rise first. And so it says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Paul also indicates from this passage that his coming is imminent. That means any time now. It could be while he or the Thessalonians were still living. He said, we who are alive and remain. Certainly if Paul could say that in his day, 2,000 years ago, we're 2,000 years closer. And so his coming is imminent. It involves the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who will descend from heaven, the Bible says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. He promised, if I go, I'll come again. Where I am, there you may be also. Another note here that you should be well aware of, and this is a key passage of Scripture, it says that he will come to the air, not to the earth, to the air. He will eventually come back to the earth, but it's not at this time. So his second, when we talk about his second coming, it's multi-stage. This is the first stage of it. He comes first to the air, Prior to the tribulation period, the believers are raptured up to the air, to the clouds, to meet him in the air, it says. That's where the gathering will be. And we are out of here before the rapture, before the tribulation takes place. It says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And it says he will come with a shout. Now, I can't guarantee you that this is what he's going to say, but I speculate, okay? So just know I'm speculating here. When Jesus was on earth, and he had a friend named Lazarus, and Lazarus was dead, and his body stinketh, it says in the scripture. He was bound hand and foot for four days, and he was in the grave. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And I really believe that if he had not said Lazarus first, and he had just said come forth, every grave on earth would have been open and everybody would have come forth. That is the power of the word of the Lord. Okay? But he said Lazarus, come forth. Now again, it's speculation that what is his shout going to be. But I would not be surprised if in his shout he names every single believer who has ever trusted in him and calls them forth from the grave like he did Lazarus, and they will come not bound hand and foot where we have to be loosed and let go, but we will be freed in a new body, resurrection body, and we will meet the Lord in the air. Speculation, yes, but it's a wonderful thought, isn't it? It includes the voice of an archangel, Along with the Lord's shout, there's a voice of an archangel. The archangels were often used in the scripture to uh, announce some great event, some earth-shattering historical event, such as the birth of the Lord. Uh, Well, this is one of those great events, and the archangels are included in the um, announcement of it. It includes the trumpet of God. This is not the last trumpet. Some people make that mistake. But this is the trumpet found in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Wow. 
that body that will not experience what this body experiences. It invokes the dead in Christ to rise. And this can only refer to church-age believers. They will rise first. To quote a phrase from a song, The oceans give up the dead that are in them. The graves open wide to set captives free. Those whose ashes remain from being burned at the stake are reconstituted and rise to meet him. Those who have been beheaded for their faith will rise up to see the Lord in the air. Those who, like the martyrs of Ecuador, were speared to death, rise first. And then those who have died down through the centuries, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, will not be left behind. They, not we, will rise first. But it also includes you and me. And if we are here when the Lord returns, and we are living when the Lord returns, you know what? We out. Okay? It's just like that. The Lord instantly, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we're gone. Those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Soon and very soon, we're going to meet the Lord. If you were that slave girl, oh, by the way, you were. That's who we were. Waiting for her bridegroom to return. How would your life be any different than it is today? How would you live differently if you were waiting for your bridegroom to return? You are. You're waiting for him. How should it affect the way we live? If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that proposal is still on the table. That proposal is not just a contract. It's a love agreement. And he is saying to you, if you don't know him, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. He says, as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. Ho, anyone who is thirst, come to the water. All these invitations that he gives, but they all center on one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And you will be part of this company that rises to meet him when he comes back, saved from the wrath to come. Let's give him thanks. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we are on tiptoes waiting for your return. We look with anticipation, Lord, for that shout, for that uh, day when you come to the air and you uh, gather us together with you in the clouds and you take us to your Father's house. There we will enjoy the marriage of the Lamb. There we will enjoy the time spent with the Lord Jesus, and for all eternity. Lord, we look forward to that time when we will no longer um, believe in you simply by faith, but by sight we will see those nail-pierced hands. We will see those nail-pierced feet and the side that was pierced for us. We will see the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We will fall down and we will worship with unfettered hearts. Lord, we look longingly for that day, and we pray, Lord, that we might live each day in anticipation of your soon return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.